All right, let's turn once again back to Revelation chapter 3. And I want to draw your attention to verse number 8. The Word of God says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. No man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. The church in Philadelphia is our subject tonight with a, maybe a subtitle, uh, simply an open door. Uh, this letter to Philadelphia, Philadelphia was a city that was in a valley. Uh, within that valley, there was a very important road. It was a road that uh, much commerce passed through. It was important for the uh, sustainability of Philadelphia. Philadelphia received its name from a man named Italus, uh, who, with loyalty to his brother, uh, won him the title of a brother lover. Most of us know the city of Philadelphia here in our country as Philadelphia is the city of what? The city of brotherly love. So Philadelphia, that's what the name means. It means a brother lover. It was founded with the intention of being a center for the spread of the Greek language. It had a very pointed and intentional uh, planting. It had a very intentional purpose for its existence. And from the very beginning, it was known as a missionary city. Uh, it was a city that was uh, very, uh, what we would call today in our uh, church terms, if you will, uh, missionary uh, friendly. It, it had a zeal for missions. It had a zeal for the gospel. Uh, it had a zeal to go out and to preach the gospel to the various places. And by the standards, it would have been considered successful. But you also would find that Philadelphia could be described as a powerfully weak church. Now, we'll, we'll explain that here in a few moments. A powerfully weak church. Very similar to the church that we read about and learned about in Smyrna, the church in Philadelphia is not condemned, it is not judged, but is praised and encouraged by Christ. It is one of the rare occasions where the Lord really has absolutely nothing negative or condemning to say to this church. And very similar, like we saw in the uh, letter to the church at Smyrna, and back in verse number 9, uh, there is a reference being made to the synagogue of Satan, which again is a reference to those Jews who said that they are of God, but really are not, and they are called liars. So Philadelphia uh, is a church that we would say is a positive report. It is a church that people say, if you want to have a church, you want to have a church that is like Philadelphia. Uh, there are a couple of key phrases that are used here, uh, especially as the first verse that we read in verse 7 of chapter 3. You see the phrase, the key of David. And there's a reference to, and this is a reference to, to the authority uh, that is in God. It's the highest power. It's the highest authority in the very kingdom of God. And it is, it is written, and is the, the author, again, who is, who is giving the word to John to write, says, He that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth. It is this open door, this key 
the key of David that refers to the highest authority. So as the letter to the Church of Philadelphia is being given, there's a couple of headings we're going to look at tonight. So I'm going to go ahead and give you these headings so that if I fail to mention them again, uh, if you are one who likes to take notes and likes to follow along, you'll be able to do so. Our first heading tonight will be Christ's reminder of who he is. Christ's reminder of who he is. Our second heading will be Christ's reminder of what he has done. Our third heading will be Christ's reminder of what he will do. So really, you can see the very similar headings here. A reminder of what he will do, a reminder of what he has done, and a reminder of who he is. So first of all, let's look at verse 7, and we see this reminder of who he is. Now to this church, the Philadelphian church, he addresses himself as the holy and true one. We know that God is perfectly holy. He is perfectly truth. Uh, There is no unrighteousness in him. There is no evil in him. There is nothing in him that is untruthful. He cannot lie. He does not lie. And so this is directed intentionally why this is being used, why Christ announces that he is holy, he is true, he has the key of David, he has the highest authority, because he is going to make reference to people within that church or near that church um, who are of this synagogue of Satan, who are liars, who are not truly uh, of the things of God. Uh, it is very apparent throughout Scripture that the unbelieving Jew is never received well by God in the Scriptures. So where we see unbelief, God does not just overlook it. God does not say uh, it's man can do whatever he wants to do. When God is, shows us unbelief, it is displeasing to him. And so Christ alone announces, I have the key of David. Uh, That means I have the highest power, I have the highest authority in the kingdom, and that's what opens uh, the proverbially the open door. He says, I have the key that's going to open this door, and we're going to talk about what that open door is. But specifically, he says, I have the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. In other words, when he opens that door, it's because he's the one that does it. Nobody can shut it and nobody can open it except him. That's his authority. That's his power. It is only God, and especially here in Christ, that he is the highest power uh, in the kingdom. Hold your place there for a moment. Let's go to a couple support verses here. Go to Isaiah 22, 22, and we'll kind of look at this, uh, this particular phrase of the key. Uh, which is important to our understanding tonight. Isaiah 22, 22, and the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. Uh, The his there is a reference to Christ. So he shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. Again, Even Isaiah prophesying many, many years before Christ would come, he prophesies that Christ would announce himself to have the key of David, saying, I am the ultimate authority in the kingdom, pointing ultimately to the supremacy of Christ. So Isaiah makes mention of this key, this open door, and that he would be the only one who can open it. Matthew 16, go to a a New Testament scripture here, Matthew 16, and this will be familiar, uh, I believe, to many of us. Matthew 16, uh, verse 19, 
in our Lord's interaction with Peter, he says in verse 19, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, we see the reference to this key, the key to the kingdom of heaven, a reference to Christ, a reference to the authority, but also a reference to the church being the authority, the church being the, quote unquote, the agent of carrying out uh, what God has put into motion. So there is a reference to the church. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 uh, we'll continue and journey back towards Revelation, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So we see what's being demonstrated here in our very first verse in Revelation 3, 7 is Christ is announcing, I have the ultimate power authority. I have the ultimate power. That's how that fits the heading of Christ's reminder of who he is. We cannot lose sight of the fact that there are none who rival the supremacy of Christ. There is no authority above him. Uh, there is none who can supplant him. There is none that can open a door that he does not open. There is none that can shut a door that he is open. He is the supreme authority. And as we will see later on in our studies in Revelation 5.5, 5, it says, And one of the elders says, saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Again, authority, authority, and it is supreme authority. So Christ gives a reminder to the church of Philadelphia who he is how he is the one that opens. No man can shut it, and no man can open a door that he shuts. Our second heading, verse number eight, Christ's reminder of what he has done. Notice it says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. Now, after he's announced that he is the one who has the keys to the kingdom, he's the one that opens the door, he says to the church of Philadelphia, I have set before you an open door. Well, what is the importance of this open door? What is this open door about? Well, let's read on a little bit because it's important to, he makes mention of the reality of why his authority uh, is so very important. He says, I, I set before thee an open door, no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength and has kept my word, and has not denied my name. Now this goes back to that phrase that I said, that Philadelphia is considered the powerfully weak church. According to the things of God, it was a powerful church. According to man's standards, it was weak and small, and appeared to have no influence, no power, because of its sheer size. It was not a powerful church. It was not a church that was influencing thousands of people. But it was a church that God had said, I have set before you an open door. He commends them. He says, you've kept my word and you have not denied my name. Now, that is very different than some of the letters we have read previously to this one. So this is a letter of commendation. Christ knows that this church uh, is has little power. Uh, it's not going to change the city of Philadelphia. It's not going to influence mightily. But being small in number, and even most likely in its wealth, 
that did not detract it from being loyal to Christ and loyal to the gospel, and they did not deny the name of the Lord. In the age in which we live today, where it's, tempt- it's tempting for the church to compromise for the sake of riches, it's tempting for the church to deny the name of the Lord, to acquire riches, to acquire influence. Uh, churches today are trying to buy influence. They're trying to buy numbers. They're trying to make themselves physically strong. The Lord commends this church in Philadelphia and says, listen, you may not have all those things, but I have set before you an open door because you have not denied my name. You have stood fast even in the face of what he refers to as the synagogue of Satan. Behold, look, or take note, I've set before thee an open door. The open door really, first of all, means an opportunity. An open door is an opportunity to go in and an opportunity to go out. And with reference to the gospel, this, is an op- this was an opportunity for this church to go out and preach the gospel. This church to go out and proclaim Christ. Uh, it may be small. It may not be a church of great influence. It's not a church of great wealth. But God has never nor ever will be concerned about the physical size of a church. He's not concerned about the numbers of people who attend that church. He is concerned about those who will faithfully stand for his name and will not deny his name. In a day and age when churches say we're only successful if we have this many numbers and this many people and this, that has never mattered to God. God has never said the largest churches I'm going to use, I'm going to set before them the open door. This is, of all the churches, the seven letters, this would have been by number the absolute smallest church of all seven, and yet it's the only one he truly says, I'm setting before you an open door. And remember, he says, I'm the one that has the the key to the kingdom of God. I'm the one that opens the door. I'm the one that opens, I'm the one that shuts it. If I open the door, nobody can shut that door. But secondly, this open door also refers to the operation of God's grace. Uh, God is going to make people willing to receive what's being preached. Now, we believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation. We believe that only, only the eyes that have been opened and only the ears that have been unstopped would a, will a person be eager to even hear the things of Christ. That's why we are so grateful that if you have ears to hear, and you have eyes to see. You only have one person to thank for that. You have God to thank for that. That God, through the Holy Spirit, opened your eyes, converted your soul, uh, set your eyes upon Christ as your only only way of salvation. And God is saying that, Christ is saying, through this open door, I am going to give grace so that ears will hear and eyes will see. And what a glorious picture this will be. The, the, the whole concept of the open door and as you've stood for me and you go out and you preach and you proclaim, I'm going to give people ears to hear and they're going to be eager to receive what is being preached and proclaimed. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul makes mention of an open door. This is, this is interesting. He says, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel... And a door was opened unto me of the Lord. I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Uh, Paul uh, makes mention of an open door. 
to take the gospel and the door was, was set before him that he could preach the gospel and to take the gospel forward. Uh, in Colossians 4, he makes, Paul makes mention again of this, this expression of these doors. And he uses uh, in, in Colossians 4, uh, he says, With all praying also for us, his prayer request was specifically that God would open unto us a door. Here's what it says. With all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Paul's request was that God would open a door of utterance. Not only the ability to speak, but the opportunity to speak. What a beautiful picture this is and what, a, what a, a concept it is that Christ is the one who opens the door and He's the one that opens the door that we pray that we would be given utterance. Acts 14 verse 27 uh, says, And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how He had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. Uh, every successful gospel mission. Any success must all be given to God's glory. We never take credit for the conversion of a soul. We never say that I brought them to saving faith or I opened their heart. No, it was the door that God opened. And when God opens that door of salvation, no man can shut it. When God opens the door of the heart and opens the eyes and opens the ears, man cannot shut it. Man can't hinder it. Man can't stop it. Because the supreme authority, Christ Himself, has opened the door. Now He's telling the church at Philadelphia, I have given you an open door. Now, what kind of power could the church of Philadelphia go forward with knowing that Christ opened the door? That means there was nothing that was preventing them from going forward. Now, though this church, He, he describes them as having little power. But he immediately commends them. He said, For thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them, those are the deniers, of the synagogue of Satan. Again, a reference to the Jews who rejected Christ and turned away. There is a direct connection between them keeping the word of God and not denying his name that's connected with the open door. He put the open door before them. The keys to the kingdom, which the church in Philadelphia can preach the gospel. The physical weakness of a church is of no importance to God. Let me say that again. The physical weakness of a church is of no importance to God. God is not at all concerned with our physical weakness. He's not dependent upon whether we are physically strong. Even the Apostle Paul says that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. And in this church, this church at Philadelphia, this church in this city of brotherly love, certainly the truth that Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, is no better illustrated than in the church of Philadelphia. Now, of course, Paul was referring to that verse about his thorn in the flesh, but isn't this true for the church? 
that even if you're physically weak, even if it's the poorest church on this globe, God is not through with them just because they're weak physically. It's contrary to what the world thinks. And folks, it's contrary to what the church is buying into. The modern church is buying into, we have to have the best of everything to carry out the mission of the gospel. And there can't be a greater lie than that. God is not dependent upon the riches that a church acquires. He's not dependent upon the strength of the building, the strength of what it has. It is this small, tiny, weak church that he says, I'm setting before you an open door because you have not denied my name and you've kept my word. There are so many lessons that we could learn from what the Lord is saying to the church at Philadelphia. Our third heading really begins in verse 9 and really finishes out this passage. It's simply Christ's reminder of what he will do. You can see this outline kind of follows the whole uh, premise of the book of Revelation. The things that were, the things that are, and the things that will be. Verses 9 through 13, Christ begins to announce what's going to happen as a result of not only the open door, but as a result of his authority being carried out. Christ essentially makes four promises here in these verses. And these are four promises that Christ makes to the church in Philadelphia. And I believe it can be applied to the churches who will keep his word and will not deny his name. I can't begin to tell you how important it is that we as a church never, ever, ever deny his name. And we never, ever, ever cease to keep his word. Those are non-negotiables. There is no room for a church who's truly a church of the living God to deny his name for any reason. To say, we're denying his name for this. We're denying his name for that. There is this sense of where he makes these promises to those churches that will keep his word and not deny his name. Now, specifically, we do realize that some of these promises were made directly to the church at Philadelphia. But you'll notice in some of these, well, I'll make application, but I'm going to let the Spirit primarily instruct us here. But look at the first promise he makes. He says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet. Now, this is a, a strange promise. But he promises this Philadelphian church, though you are small in the account of human accounting and in the eyes of humanity, he's announcing to them that you're great in my eyes. One day, he says, those Jews who are of the synagogue of Satan, which if you notice the language, he said, behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan. Ultimate authority. I will make them of the synagogue of Satan. And he says the promise is that one day those who have denied my name, those who have rejected me, those who have not kept my word, will bow down at the feet of God's people. For what purpose? To know that I love thee. What a beautiful statement. In this bowing down of these deniers, it will be a sign, it will be a show that I loved you. 
I was reading through, we're going to sing it again on Sunday because it's been so long. I was reading through the hymn, The Love of God, again today. And I thought, how in the world have I missed this hymn for so long? And what a beautiful reminder of what the love of God towards his people really is. How God loves his people and how God has, in, in his son, has, has, has shed, Christ has shed his blood for his people. And what a picture, he says, that those who deny my name will see how much I loved you. Those Jews who rejected Christ will bow at the feet of the followers of Christ and be made to know that Christ loved his church. And by the way, his church includes the Jews and Gentiles alike because there are believing Jews. The church is made up of believing Jews and Gentiles. It's not just the Gentiles and all Jews are unbelieving. No, it makes up the church of the Jews and the Gentiles. But he specifically says it is those who have denied my name. And it will be a picture of his love for them. What an amazing statement that that is. Uh, back in Isaiah 45, 14, there's a reference to this uh, in prophecy that uh, really, again, you begin to see all of these um, all of these blanks being filled in and how uh, we see one thing after the other. Uh, Isaiah 45, 14, Thus saith the Lord, the labor of Egypt and the merchandise of Ethiopia and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over unto thee and they shall be thine. They shall come after thee in chains. They shall come over and they shall fall down unto thee. They shall make supplication unto thee, saying, Surely God is in thee, and there is none else. There is no God. It will be uh, this, this presence of God to bring honor not only unto himself, uh, but unto those who are of the people of God. Isaiah 49, 23 says, And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth and lick up the dust of thy feet, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. Repeatedly, over and over and over, there is this picture of not only Christ's love for his people, but how those who are not his will bow down. Uh, again, Isaiah 60, verse 14 Again, we've got, three, we've got three verses just in Isaiah. The sons also of them that afflicted thee shall come bending unto thee, and all they that despise thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet, and they shall call thee, now I want you to remember this, the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So we see it. We see this reminder of what he will do. We see this reminder of what he has done. And so we see that this first promise that Christ promises that those who rejected him will bow down at the feet of his people. Verse 10, we see the second promise. Christ promises, and I'm thankful for this one, Christ promises his persevering grace in the most trying times. Now let me just say before we look at this verse, I am personally thankful for God's grace in trying times in my life. It is the only reason that we get through them. 
God's grace is the only reason we get through trying times. It's not our, it's not our fortitude. It's not our physical strength. It's not our mental uh, fitness. It's the grace of God. And all of us, somebody said this again today and reminded me again, that at any given time, every one of us is going through something trying. And it's really, when you think about that, everybody has got something in their life right now. And I think it's true. Every, every one of you that are sitting here tonight, you have something in your life that's trying. Can I remind you that if you are one of His, God's persevering grace is promised. His grace is promised. Over against those who denied Christ, here, the church of Philadelphia kept the word of Christ. They kept the gospel of the cross in front of them. They kept the Lord's patient suffering, how He endured and He reviled not back to those who mocked Him. He, he promises them that I will give you grace. Look, He says, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. There are, are some that make reference to that day of the hour of temptation to the actual tribulation period, and they limit it to that. But I believe this, is, this contains the entirety of trying times, but specifically when persecution will come against the church, when, when the time will come, when the world uh, wants nothing more than to reject the things of Christ. He says, I want you to know there will be persevering grace. My my grace will be with you. And he says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast. He says, Don't let go of what you already have. What did he commend them for? He commended them for keeping his word and not denying his name. Folks, can I tell you that when those trying times come, that's what you need. You need to keep His Word and don't deny His name. You know what the greatest temptation is when a trying time comes is to do? It's to try to run away from it. <clears throat> try to escape it. His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. One more time, His grace is sufficient. When Paul begged God to remove that thorn in the flesh, God said, my grace is sufficient. I'm not taking away the trial. And just because God leaves us in a trial doesn't mean He's not giving us persevering grace to get through it. Even if we, observe, even if we experience extreme persecution, His persevering grace is still at work. And He says, what is it? Keep my word and do not deny my name. He promises them this persevering grace. But notice what he says. Again, we kind, of, we kind of read quickly by this. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee. What greater promise can you have than he who has ultimate authority saying, I will keep you? You know, humans promise to protect other people. We've all had someone say, I'll always be there for you. I'll keep you. I'll protect you. I'll look out for you. Only to find out when the trying time comes, they flee. God says, I will keep you from the hour of temptation. So what does that mean? That means we can rest on that promise by God who cannot lie. 
I will keep you. But he also notice, but notice he also says, I want you to keep and hold fast that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. This crown is a reference to a reward of grace. It is a reference to uh, obeying and keeping his word. There is this promise that he makes that I will keep you. You notice that as he goes on, he says, Him that overcometh, verse 12, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. Those who hold fast to the word of Christ and remain faithful to him, even in the midst of persecution, Christ promises to make them victors over those who persecuted them. Over and over and over again, we see those who were the deniers of Christ trying to destroy God's people. And he says, no matter what the persecution that comes, I want you to take heart and know that ultimate victory is already yours. They're not going to overcome you. To be kept from the hour of testing, to be kept safe from the hour of temptation, to have God's persevering grace. Notice again, there is a reference to his coming again. Behold, I come quickly. We all would like to be able to say tonight, I know exactly when he'll come again. But here's what ought to challenge us. When the Lord says, I'm coming quickly, we ought to take that seriously and say, that means he's coming quickly. And in the scope of our human minds, remember, we're so limited because we're, all, we're such time, we're bound by time. We only think of situations, how long we've been somewhere, how long it's going to take to get somewhere, and yet he's not bound by time. So when he uses the phrase, I come quickly, it's not for us to know the time, it's not for us to know the hour, it is for us to be reminded that one day he is coming again. And he says to those that overcome, I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go no more out and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God and I will write upon him my new name. A pillar is a reference to something that is permanent. Those who overcome, those who, who, who remain faithful, they, were, they become a permanent. They obtain the very one thing. We often ask this question, what was the one thing that David ultimately wanted? You think about the life of David and you say, well, David wanted to be king. David wanted to have the most. Uh, he wanted to have the largest army. He wanted to be the strongest. But Psalm 27, 4 tells us what David's great desire was. Here's what it says. One thing have I desired of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The one thing was to dwell in the house of the Lord. To dwell with someone is to reside with them. But it also has the meaning of enjoying his presence and enjoying his protection. David said, this is the one thing I've desired. Not only is it the one thing I desire, it's the one thing I seek after. 
by way of application tonight, I could ask ourselves that tonight. What is your one thing? What is the one thing you desire? What is the one thing you desire more than anything? He says, My, mine is, is to dwell in the presence of God forever. Our lives are filled with a whole lot of different desires, but is it that type of a desire? David, when he desired that, God is giving the promises of those that overcome, making them a pillar. It's permanent. But he says, I will also write upon him the name of my God. When the name of the Lord is written upon his people, no one can ever erase that name from them. He's talking about those who will permanently abide and dwell with God. Permanently established in his kingdom. He promises he is coming soon with a reward of grace. That's that third promise. And the fourth promise is, is that Christ promises his new name will be written upon the redeemed. Christ will write upon those who overcome the name of his God and the name of the city of his God. And he says the name which is the new Jerusalem. That's a reference to his own name. I will write upon them my name. In other words, to those who he gives this kingdom, they will be given the assurance that they belong to God. I know assurance is a difficult thing. It's a difficult topic for a lot of people, and people struggle mightily with assurance. But ultimately what assurance comes down to is believing what God has already declared. Ultimately, assurance is never going to be based upon what you feel. It's based on what God has promised. My assurance is not based on anything that I feel. My assurance in Christ is based on what he's declared about those who repent and believe, first of all, and what the result of repentance and believing is declared to be. And he says, those who are mine have this promise. They will be pillars in the kingdom of God, permanent residents. They will have my name written on them. They will dwell in the new Jerusalem. Let's talk about that in just a moment. But this is where our assurance comes from. People say that I want assurance. Well, let me give you a little bit of theology tonight. Assurance doesn't belong to you. Assurance belongs to God. In other words, it is God who gives that assurance. By declaring his word. Now we experience the feeling of assurance. But remember your feelings are fleeting. The range of your feelings today from the time your alarm went off till right now is completely erratic. You've gone from, the, you've gone from a mountaintop to a valley back to a mountaintop, halfway up, halfway down. You've been all over the place. And every single one of those, when you start going a little bit further down, you start feeling a little bit less assurance or feeling a little bit less, I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this. It's never been about that. It's been about what God declares about himself and what he declares about those that belong to him. Assurance comes down to believing God. And believing what God has declared you to be. It's believing passages like, no one shall separate them from my hand. No one shall pluck them out. 
If you are in Christ today, you cannot be plucked out no matter what happens to you. The people that struggle with assurance, and we've all been there, this isn't pointing anybody out, we've all been there, is because we are failing to keep His Word and believe what God has said. And by the way, we're going to struggle with this. We're going to struggle with our assurance because our feelings and our heart is deceptive and it always leads us to think our feelings can be trusted. <laughs> Your feelings are one of the most dangerous things we have. It's one, of these, it's one of these mysteries. God gives us feelings and yet it's the one thing that can lead us astray, especially spiritually. You know, it, when someone says, I don't feel saved, in, in God's economy, that really doesn't matter. It, it's never been declared that your salvation's based upon your feeling saved. No, it's based upon what God has declared about those who've called upon him. Those who come unto me, I will no wise cast out. It's believing God. And notice he says where this comes from. He says, which cometh down from heaven, from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. This explanation here, this 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 beautiful picture of which cometh down out of heaven from my God. Folks, we have to get it in our minds that the heaven and the earth and the sea as we now see them is going to vanish. There is going to be a transformation of it all. And the city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, he says, it's that that I saw coming down out of heaven from God, having been made ready. This Jerusalem is, met, is called the new because it's meant to be distinct from the earthly Jerusalem. It's meant to be a, a differentiating fact. It says, listen, there's Jerusalem, but then there's the new Jerusalem. And notice it's called the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. I will write upon him my new name. This new Jerusalem will be perfectly holy because it will be separate from sin and consecrated to God. This is a reference to the church, the bride. Even in the Old Testament, we see references to the church being represented under the symbolism of a city. That's why we read Isaiah 26 in part of our scripture reading and Psalm 48. Both that Psalm and Isaiah 26 there was a lot of symbolism about the promises of God with reference to cities. A city calls to our mind something that's permanent. It calls to our mind something of where there's a great number of inhabitants, where there's a great number of people dwelling there. What we can't begin to comprehend is the number of people who are going to be part of this church, who are part, who are a part of the family of God, who are the pillars, who have the name written upon them, and the perfect fellowship we're going to experience for all of eternity. These promises that are being made, even in principle today, when we think about the beauty of fellowship in a church, I'm going to talk about this on Sunday, about our holy fellowship, how we fellowship together and how we're showing just a glimpse. And again, it's just a glimpse because it's, we're not sinless yet. But we're giving a glimpse of what fellowship of believers is supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like. Christ ends this letter with a very familiar ending as the letters have been. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. 
The one to whom God has granted the spiritual ability to understand the truth, this is who he's talking to. If you've been given the ear to hear, I'm talking to you. If you hear these truths tonight, he says, I'm talking to you. If you hear the reality of not denying my name, if you hear the reality of holding and keeping my word, if you hear the promises. So tonight, if you're sitting here, and again, let's go back to that. If you're struggling with assurance, he's talking to you and he's saying, you that have an ear to hear, listen to what I'm saying. Believe my promises. These promises I'm making to the church of Philadelphia, I'm also making promises to my people. Take God at His word. You know, when we go through struggles and somebody tries to help us, the greatest help they can give you, the greatest help you can get is when they point you to Scripture and they say, here's what God's word says. You say, no, I want your opinion. Folks, I'm going to say this as not kindly as I can. I don't want your opinion. I want God's word. Your opinion, my opinion, doesn't matter. God's word does. When, when, I have been, when I have gone through the most difficult trials in my life, the only thing that has ever helped me has never been someone giving me their opinion. It's when somebody said, do you know what God says in this passage? Do you remember what God says in this verse? Do you remember the promise God makes to his people here? And that's, that's where the comfort comes from. It is the word of God that he says, keep my word. He says, you have an open door because you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. And I want you to know these promises that are there before you. The church in Philadelphia is quite a contrast for the church we'll look at next week. The church next week is probably the most familiar. You've probably heard the most sermons on. And I would dare say you've probably heard the most opinions and the most different ways to describe, and that's the church of Laodicea. So if you want to read ahead next week, we'll be dealing with uh, verses 14 uh, through the end of the chapter. That's what the intent will be. Whether we get through it all in one sitting, we'll see. But we'll, we'll start dealing with the church of Laodicea next week. Let's conclude our time by singing the hymn on 442. 442, we'll sing this hymn and then we'll close in prayer tonight. Hymn 442, O Breath of God. 442.